Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 23 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. In 1928, as I mentioned in episode 19, A Perfect Beach of a Part, the Wampus shared 40% of the net profits from their annual Frolicum Ball with the Motion Picture Relief Fund. And since ticket sales that year were underwhelming due to increased prices, everyone was feeling a little bit raw about the whole thing. What I failed to realize is that one of the reasons they donated so much to the fund was in an attempt to not have to give any of the net profits to something dubbed the All-Year Club. The All-Year Club was a not-for-profit organization whose reason for existence was to promote Southern California tourism. In 1927, in cahoots with the Los Angeles Publishers Association and the Producers Association, the All-Year Club declared that they should be the beneficiaries of some of the Frolic's profits, which to that point had gone back to the Wampus coffers. In 1928, the Wampus managed to kick the can down the road by agreeing to donate to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. But in 1929, the All-Year Club used its influential connections in an attempt to twist the knife. The L.A. publishers, who had previously promoted the frolic heavily, threatened to withdraw all advertising for the event. The Producers Association, who previously allowed for ticket sales to happen on the studio lots, threatened to ban lot-based sales. The Wombas, who had already agreed to give some of the net to the relief fund again, didn't want to cut further into their final takeaway by donating to this tourism board. They insisted that they used any proceeds to take care of members in need, as well as pay for members' life insurance policies. Though listeners of this podcast may recall that one year they bought themselves a new clubhouse on the beach, so eh, maybe they needed it. Everything was set for the Wampus Frolic and Ball to be held on February 12, 1929 at the Shrine Auditorium. Thousands of tickets were sold, and it all had to be cancelled. The Wampus Baby Stars will be introduced at a testimonial banquet to be held privately instead, explained Motion Picture News just ten days before the event was supposed to go on. Public admission will not be permitted. Tickets to be sold by Wampus members to their friends only. Meanwhile, the revision of their plans will cost the press agents a large sum nonetheless. Many advertising contracts have been secured by solicitors for the Wampus Frolic program. These contracts must be returned, but a cash settlement made with solicitors in view of their labor stands just the same. Also, several thousand dollars worth of tickets must be refunded. In addition, there are the printing bills, the deposit on the Shrine Auditorium, office rentals established for the Frolic, and certain staff salaries to be paid. That the change in plans will cost the Wampus a certain loss of prestige cannot be denied. However, the association feels that it would rather take the loss in prestige than the one it would have to suffer financially under the conditions made. All dressed up and no place to go probably describes the plight of the Wampus baby stars, put picture play a bit more cutely. Instead of a big glamorous ball like years past, the 1929 Wampus Baby Stars were introduced at a dinner held at the Breakfast Club. 
The young ladies presented without pomp and circumstance were Jean Arthur, Sally Blaine, Betty Boyd, Ethelyn Clare, Doris Dawson, Josephine Dunn, Helen Foster, Doris Hill, Carol Lincoln, Anita Page, Mona Rico, Helen Twelvetrees, and Loretta Young. It may not have been as flashy as the event they dreamed of, but a flashy beginning doesn't mean all that much in Hollywood, does it? Betty Boyd Born in 1908 in Kansas, Betty Boyd was fresh out of high school when she made her way to Hollywood and quickly began appearing in Hal Roach comedy shorts, often uncredited. Wampus members began to take notice of her as early as 1926 when she was rumored for the next year's Wampus Babies list for the first time. She didn't make the cut, but it is interesting that her name was being bandied about. What does the future hold for Betty Boyd? asked Pitcher Play in their August 1926 issue in a piece about newcomers they called Faces You Will See Again. Much, perhaps, for Cecil B. DeMille himself, who has given us so many of our favorites, is showing an interest in her and gave her a bit in The Volga Boatman. If Betty is in 1926's The Volga Boatman, the details of her appearance are lost to history. Similarly, she is also advertised in the film Mercury as appearing in Universal's Take It From Me and Fox's Fig Leaves that same year. But though all three films still exist, she has not been successfully identified in any of them. Betty's earliest confirmed feature was The Show in 1927, where she appeared uncredited opposite John Gilbert and Lionel Barrymore. She then spent the next couple of years in educational comedy shorts for Max Sennett, where, as Moving Picture World put it, she headed the beauty contingent. That is to say, she was there to be pretty, not to be an ace comedienne. She was popular enough, though, and shortly after she did make the Wampus list in 1929, it was reported in Picture Play that she was making $750 a week. That same article mentioned that Wampus Baby Star of 1924, Dorothy DeVore, was making similar. And for context, Dorothy was a successful star of two-reelers, though by this point things had slowed down for her considerably. So basically, Betty was on the up and making a similar amount to a much better-known performer who was on her way down. If she wanted to continue to be on the up, however... She had to do what Dorothy had failed to do, which is transition into feature-length films. In 1930, the opportunity presented itself, and she appeared in several full-length pictures. In supporting roles, but Betty was busy. However, she also had something else other than her career occupying her mind. Betty Boyd weds heir to millions, read the headline in October 1930. Her new husband was Charles Henry Over, and he was indeed heir to a reported $60 million estate from the Libby McNeil and Libby Canning Company. That's over a million dollars in today's money. So, you know, after that, it's not like Mrs. Moneybags needed to work. She did appear in a, a couple of shorts in 1931, almost certainly filmed before her marriage. When the marriage fell apart in 1934, however, Betty tried to slip back into Hollywood with not a great deal of success. Modern Hero Gives Betty Boyd a Chance, 
said the press book of her only film in 1934, Modern Hero. They go on to exaggerate Betty Boyd, once a bright luminary of the screen heavens in her own right until she married and retired, is essaying a comeback in films. Would we call it a comeback? Would we call her a bright luminary of the screen heavens in her own right? Anyway, they go on to quote her as saying, I know it's a lot harder to come back than it is to stay up once you're there, but I'm determined and I'm going to make the effort. I'm amazed that they bothered to feature her in the press book because she didn't end up credited for the bit part she played. Betty remarried in 1935, once again retiring from the screen, but didn't try again after this short marriage, and I couldn't find much else about her save for a couple of uncredited extra roles later in her life. Was Betty Boyd ever a star? No, she was not. What did the future hold for Betty Boyd? Well, nothing in the Wampus Crystal Ball. Helen Foster As if a real star, an entertaining tale, and excellent direction were not enough, there is the added presence in this cast of the most promising girl we have noticed on the screen in a blue or even a red moon. She is Helen Foster. She is beautiful. She has poise. She is, in plain language, a wow. She helps to make the tourist a real knockout that any house should welcome with open arms, said the New York Morning Telegraph about one of Helen's earliest film shorts, as repeated in the September 5, 1925 issue of the Exhibitor's Trade Review. Helen was then 19, born in May 1906 in Kansas as Helen Davis. She used her mother's surname professionally, and boy, did I ever find some interesting things on ancestry. Namely, that Helen and her widowed mother arrived in California no later than 1923. I know that because that's when Helen got married to a guy named Leonard L. Beasley in May, right around her 17th birthday. Her son Eugene was born in November, and I think we can all do that math. Helen didn't really talk about her son publicly, but he doesn't appear to have been a secret either, even though Eugene doesn't come up in really any of the biographical information I've seen written lately. As this rather annoying section from Motion Picture News writes, talking about the Wampus Baby Stars of 1929, this year's selection held a lot of surprises. It's one of the first Baker's dozen elected in a couple of seasons that didn't contain a mother of a child for a baby star. Hi-ho, and why not? Oh my gosh! And a guy looking over my shoulder says, You're crazier than a bat! How about Helen Foster? Darn, there goes a good story. If you can parse that inanity, what they're saying is that somebody thought none of the baby stars had children, and they were duly corrected because everyone did know that Helen had a son. Anyway, Leonard doesn't appear to have remained in the picture very long, and he probably died, though I couldn't find the record. Whatever happened, when Helen decided to go into movies in 1925, she was supporting a toddler and her mother when she did so. For the first two years or so of her career, Helen landed a few small roles in westerns, but mostly appeared in comedy shorts, including some opposite Lupino Lane. In 1927, after appearing in supporting roles in the action comedy feature Naughty Nanette and the Ranger the Dog vehicles When a Dog Loves and the Outlaw Dog, 
she caught the attention of Universal to do a 10-episode two-reeler serial, The Haunted Island, released in 1928. Around this same time, The Road to Ruin was released by Poverty Row producer Cliff Broughton. The sexploitation drama starred Helen as an innocent teenager who gets peer pressured into kissing and then falls down a slippery slope of sin, including drinking, smoking, playing strip poker, and having meaningless sex with older men. It was hugely popular. According to the Exhibitor's Herald, people fought to get seats, and in one theater two patrons fell into the orchestra pit. Speaking of the orchestra pit, though it was originally released as a silent, Road to Ruin was so popular that it was re-released in November 1928 with a synchronized soundtrack. But it was, as you might imagine, quite controversial with local censor boards. Road to Ruin was banned in New York and Philadelphia, for example. Apparently, one enterprising New Jersey theater arranged a shuttle surface specifically for this film. Helen did several other low-budget features that year, including Should a Girl Marry, Sweet Sixteen, and The Mating Call. None with quite the same buzz as The Road to Ruin, but it all meant that she was going into 1929 and the Wampus Baby Stars list as quite the hot commodity. It was while working on The Road to Ruin that Helen met Mrs. Wallace Reed, that is, Dorothy Davenport, for the first time. Dorothy acted as some kind of unofficial producer for the film, with some news items at the time referring to it as her production. As I recounted in the two-reeler episode Not Suitable for a Sunday, actor, writer, director, producer Dorothy lost her husband Wallace Reed in 1923 as a result of his drug addiction. She then devoted her life to using the medium of film in fighting against the evils of narcotics, but her contributions were often not credited or not credited in a way that properly reflected her role and contributions. If you have been wondering what has become of Mrs. Wallace Reed, stop. She's making quickies and making money too, wrote a caption in Photoplay under a shot of Helen and Dorothy playing tennis. The pretty girl in this picture is her protege, Helen Foster. Mrs. Reed thinks Helen is a find, and that the child will go far in films. Dorothy signed Helen to a personal contract, and they collaborated a few other times, including on 1929's Linda, which Dorothy directed. That was one of half a dozen features that Helen did that year, so no one could say she wasn't busy. While most of her films were low-budget affairs, she did land supporting roles in the Warner Brothers films So Long, Letty and Gold Diggers of Broadway. Tagline, Girls, Songs, Dances, Color. But in 1930, Helen didn't have a single film released. Helen Foster is very much alive to my knowledge, said the answer man in the November 1930 issue of Motion Picture Classic, proving that other people were wondering what was up too. I wish I had an answer for you, but there was very little about Helen reported on. She was back to work in 1931, and for the next few years appeared in Poverty Row productions, typically in supporting roles or as the leading lady to little attention. In 1934, her old mentor, Dorothy Davenport Reed, cast her once again in the sound remake of The Road to Ruin. This time, Dorothy was officially in the director's chair, and the film was just as controversial as before. Despite still being a cautionary tale, the scandalous subject matter of a teen girl, played by the now-in-her-late-twenties Helen, 
falling into a life of drinking, sex, and an illegal abortion, pissed off the censors and caused full boycotts from the Catholic Church as well as a record number of requested cuts. The new Road to Ruin received mixed reviews and does not appear to have been the hit that the original was. It certainly did little to revive Helen's career. She had a handful more credited roles before slipping into uncredited bit parts, which she continued to do occasionally until the 1950s. She may have gotten married, she started using the surname Rosenberg for a brief period anyway, but eventually went back to using her original surname Davis. But by then, Helen's time in Hollywood was long over. Were the Wampus right about Helen Foster? No. But it's hard to pinpoint why it all failed to come together for her. Perhaps the somewhat sanctimonious reputation of Mrs. Wallace Reed stood in her way, but that's pure speculation on my part. Mona Rico Mona Rico started out in pictures as the girl with the pretty hands, said Screenland's February 1929 issue. Then they discovered the rest of her. Born in 1907 in Mexico City as Enriqueta de Valenzuela, Mona was 19 when she and her mother crossed the border into the United States in 1928 on their way to Hollywood. She took up work as an extra, and so the story goes, was waiting in a casting office when director Ernst Lubitsch came in needing an extra pair of hands. Literally, he was filming a test sequence that required a shot of a lady's hands. Mona got the gig, and Ernst offered to give her a screen test, face included. She was quickly signed to a contract with United Artists, and announced as a supporting player in Ernst's next film, Eternal Love, 1929, starring John Barrymore. Not bad for her very first film. That said, Eternal Love was a silent film with a synchronized score, which, while not unusual for 1929, was a little behind the times, if we're being honest. The future was sound, and quite quickly it became apparent that Mona was going to run into some issues if required to speak English on film. In a piece called the microphone, the terror of the studios. In their December 1929 issue, Photoplay characterized the microphone as terrible Mike. Instead of Mona, she had stolen the scene. It was one of those things the little extra girls dream about. And before she knew it, Mona Rico was playing the lead opposite John Barrymore. She put on all the stuff that went with it. Apartment, maids, autos, chauffeurs, clothes, Lupe Velez must have lain awake, worrying nights. But Terrible Mike has a Nordic superiority complex or something. He stepped right into Mona Rico's life, planted himself before her, and said, You, how do you speak English? Poor Mona Rico, gone is the dream. A small role as the Spanish dancer in The Shanghai Lady was the only other thing she did in 1929. Mona did appear in some American-made Spanish-language films starting in 1930, as well as some shorts and bit parts here and there in English-language productions, but really, it was all over before it even truly began. In 1932, Mona's bad luck continued when she and her husband were involved in an airplane accident that killed the pilot of the very small craft they were in. Mona and her husband both survived, but the husband broke a leg, and Mona received a large scar on her face that required plastic surgery. 
After her 1933 divorce, Monick tried to continue on with what remained of her career, but nothing substantial came her way. She made her final, uncredited, appearance in 1941. No, Mona Rico never became a star. Was it the Nordic superiority complex of Terrible Mike? Maybe. And perhaps things would have been different if she had been around in Hollywood longer with more time to build up her name as a silent player, but it's impossible to say. What is sure is that the Wampus got this one wrong. Ethelene Clare Ethelene Clare was born in 1904 in Alabama as Ethelene Williamson, bizarrely choosing to only change her surname when taking to the screen. But I shouldn't judge, my name is Marg. High praise is also accorded to Ethelene Clare, the southern beauty sent to Los Angeles to play Mrs. Newlywed in this series, wrote Universal Weekly in May 1926 about the comedy serial The Newlyweds and Their Baby. Ed Dooley, a.k.a. Mr. Newlywed, had caught the flu, causing a delay on the Stern Brothers' production. Abe and Julius Stern were a sibling team, deeply ingrained with the Lemleys at Universal, who distributed their films. Continued the piece, While waiting for Dooley's recovery, Miss Clare was cast in several other Stern Brothers comedies. Her screen ability and flair for comedy surprised the Stearns, who now feel she has great possibilities as a comedy star. Before entering the comedy field, Miss Clare played in a number of features in New York. Adapted from a popular comic strip, the two earlier series followed the misadventures of a young couple and their baby, Snookums. It would have been hard to pick two performers to handle the comic strip characters better than they do, wrote the Film Daily's review. They make a great team. Dooley has caught the spirit of the boob husband, and Ethelene Clare is a new and attractive film personality. She has beauty, charm, and real comedy talent. Universal, seeing that she could hold her own quite well in the world of short comedies, graduated her, while still regularly playing Mrs. Newlywed, into playing the leading lady role for three features in 1927, the action-adventure flight movie Three Miles Up and two Hoot Gibson westerns, A Hero on Horseback and Painted Ponies. This trend continued into the next year. Newlywed's shorts, also called Snookum's shorts after the baby, and leading lady roles opposite cowboys, horses, Hello Rex, and the like. Very popular stuff, albeit hardly high-end productions or notably rewarding roles. Ethelene later said, I wanted to do big things and become a big star, not ride horses through the desert. I thought I was above all that. I just wanted to be a beautiful vamp. Her manager, Richard Lonsdale Dale Hinshaw, sometimes spelled Hanshaw, promised to make her a star, and according to Ethelene, um, the other half of the bargain, involved driving her to Tijuana, Mexico in 1928 against her will and forcing her to marry him at gunpoint. He sounds like a really nice guy! Within two months, she had escaped that horrible so-called marriage and was entering 1929, while not a beautiful vamp, a beautiful single lady with a steadily consistent career including a new contract with Pathé. Not everyone was so up on Ethelene, though. Of course, I will never understand or forgive their selecting Ethelene Clare to represent Pathé when Carol Lombard was the logical choice, 
rather nastily quipped the bystander gossip column in picture play. Why, Ethelene Clare just makes cereals and whoever sees them. Plenty of people did see cereals, actually, though they rarely got the attention or high praise of features. And I am basically obsessed with Carol Lombard, so perhaps I would have felt the same way. At least Motion Picture Classic was a bit more supportive. For Ethelene, everything seems to be Claire Sailing. Fresh from her election as a 1929 baby star, she forthwith was cast in the name part of a serial entitled Queen of the Northwoods. Queen of the Northwoods, of which the film Daily said, Running true to serial form, logic doesn't enter the story too much, but the excitement element is there strong, was much of the same for Ethelene. In 1930, she married again to Ern Westmore, part of the makeup department family dynasty, the Westmores. Far from a happy occasion, their wedding made embarrassing headlines and press coverage. Probably the most dramatic episode among all the Hollywood weddings occurred the night Ethelene Clare, Wampus' baby star, became the wife of Ernest Westmore, chief makeup man at the RKO Studios, wrote New Movie Magazine about the event in a feature they called Phantoms at the Altar. The ceremony was performed at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church and was attended by many of the film elite. Miss Clare, one of the most radiant and charming blondes in all of Hollywood, was a dream of beauty as she emerged from the church portals on the arm of the groom. Then, a child, seven years old, with a short dress and short hair, rushed to Mr. Westmore's side and reached for his hand. Daddy, she explained, why don't you pay Bobby that money so I could go back to school? It was Westmore's little daughter, Muriel, and beside her stood Viota Westmore, his former wife, and as the child made her plea, a news photographer's flashlight boomed, and the flash caught the process server, handing out a document, hailing the groom into a court on a little matter of back alimony, all of which was caught by the camera eye. A phantom from Ernest Westmore's past, a warning, an apparition. Westmore pursued the cameraman and destroyed his camera almost, but one plate was not damaged, and the scene got into print. But what of Atheline? The game, courageous little blonde, said, Never mind, Ernest, I understand. You understand that he's a deadbeat dad? She stayed with Ern for the better part of a decade, and they had a daughter before divorcing. But, jeesh, poor Muriel! Atheline's career didn't last nearly so long even though she did manage to escape serials to do a couple of supporting roles in the early 1930s. It was all over by 1932. She married for a third and final time, much more happily, and had more children. Was Ethelene ever a star? No, the Wampus weren't right there. But of course, much of that may simply have been to do with the quality of material she had to work with. Many decades later, when asked to name her favorite film she'd ever appeared in, Ethelene said, I didn't like any of them. Fair enough. Anita Page The picture industry, as exemplified by Hollywood, remained firmly indifferent to the arrival of Harry K. Thaw, who knows his Broadway, 
and who is admittedly on the coast to dabble seriously in motion picture production, wrote Moving Picture World in their December 17, 1927 edition under the very catty headline, Thaw's Arrival Causes No Stir. It continued, Accompanying Thaw were his protégés, Anne Hughes and Anita Rivers, 17-year-old screen hopefuls. Anita Evelyn Palmers was born in August 1910 in New York. Her father had Spanish ancestry by way of Cuba and Venezuela. This ancestry was used a bit in Anita's publicity, but as she did not fit the dark-haired, dark-eyed look that most American audiences expected from someone with Latin heritage, it didn't shape her career in the same way that other Wampus Baby stars' careers were shaped. This partly explains her adopted surnames, first Rivers and then Page, which were notably English-sounding. She did indeed make her way to Hollywood in 1927 with the promise of a film career from Harry Kendall Thaw, which must have scared the shit out of her parents. Why? Who is Harry Kendall Thaw? A murderer! That's who. The Cliff Notes version of Harry, as this is Anita's story, not his. Way back in 1906, Harry shot and killed Stanford White, officially because Stanford had sexually assaulted Harry's wife, Evelyn Nesbitt, but also because of a long-standing obsessive vendetta. At the trial, which was dubbed the trial of the century and had garnered major press attention, Harry was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity and institutionalized. He was mentally ill, as well as being an intravenous drug user, sexual sadist, and all-around nightmare. After years of confinement, he was released only to commit a terrible crime against a teenage boy in 1916, and then reinstitutionalized until 1924. By 1927, Harry wanted to get into the movie business and had formed a fledgling production company to which he signed Anita. Her mother, by the way, was not totally negligent and did accompany the party westward, but according to Photoplay, failed to give Anita much in the way of details about her new boss. I don't understand yet just what he's famous for, they quoted Anita as saying in their May 1928 issue. Mother told me some... He was mixed up in a shooting scrape a long time ago, wasn't he? And she adds, He's a funny man. Funny. Okay. Given Harry's whole deal, it's not really surprising that he got a distinct cold shoulder from Hollywood and made no films. Luckily for Anita, it turned out that her contract with him wasn't legal and she quickly found herself free to do tests with real studios. It was at this point that she adopted the surname Page to shake off any lingering associations with Harry Thaw. Luck found Anita again when, as a result of screen tests at both Paramount and MGM, she ended up with two contract offers to choose from in early 1928. She chose MGM, and goodness did it ever seem like the right choice. They quickly put her to work doing the publicity photos that all the MGM starlets took. She shows up in cheesecake shots, posing in bathing suits, fake reading fake books, standing by cars in short shorts, and the like. MGM also gave her a plum leading lady role in Telling the World, opposite one of their most popular young matinee idols, William Haynes. 
And now I have a little surprise for you, wrote Screenland about the film. Here's the newest picture girl, and she's a treat. You're going to fall for Anita Page as hard as Haynes does in the picture, only it won't take you as long as it did him. Anita is so young and fresh and pretty and radiant, you can't believe she's actually a movie actress in a studio working at a director's orders. She might have wandered in from some girl's select seminary on a lark. Pretty good for her first credited feature. And then came Our Dancing Daughters, released in 1928. Also starring Joan Crawford and Dorothy Sebastian, Our Dancing Daughters was a major hit. It was Joan's breakout role for sure, but it certainly didn't hurt Dorothy and Anita's careers either. Capping off the year, Anita appeared in Well, the City Sleeps with Lon Chaney, and thus her inclusion on the 1929 Wampus Baby Stars list was a no-brainer. She even landed the cover of Screenland's January 1929 issue, just ahead of the proposed Wampus Frolic. That year, she had six films released, including the spiritual sequel to Our Dancing Daughters, Our Modern Maidens, and a starring role in the Broadway melody opposite baby star of 1922, Bessie Love. Anita's popularity continued to rise, leading some to ponder if the time of the flapper was finally coming to a close. Hollywood's Nine O'Clock Girl, read the headline in Picture Play's November issue. Anita Page leads the rising group of natural, girlish girls that has already threatened the supremacy of the Hey Hey sorority. Is youth going natural again? they ask. Are boyish silhouettes and wisecracking and semi-sophistication out? The steadily increasing popularity of Anita Page adds to the present indication that the flapper has streaked her carmine path through enough jazz jingles. A new and less hectic type of girl, adapting the valentine feminine allure to the vital modern mold, is prevalent at all the studios, and is personably illustrated by Anita. Anita, who lived with her parents and little brother, signified a less worldly, less cynical type of young lady. She was presented as sporty, family-orientated, optimistic, and entirely without airs. Enthusiastic, but not wild. Social, but not a partier. A nice girl, but not quite the Pollyanna of earlier days either. And feminine. A direct counterswing to the so-called boyish flapper. Anita Page was born Anita Palmares, and she is a blonde, blue-eyed Latin, said Photoplay, apparently thinking this was quite novel. And, too, she represents a new type of girl that is superseding the boyish flapper. Anita is fluffy, feminine, and not too thin. Fluffy Anita looked poised for big-time stardom, and then it really all fell apart. The official story, for quite a long time, was that Anita and her manager looked at the piles of fan mail that were coming in for her and figured that she should be making more money. A raise was negotiated, but Louis B. Mayer was pissed off at the perceived ingratitude and told her, I'll never lift another finger to help you. She was subsequently relegated to smaller roles and loan notes for the rest of her contract. In her later life, Anita shared another part of the story. Although this action is sometimes credited to Irving Thalberg, in Tony Vallejo's 
2001 book, he interviewed Anita, and she said that Louis B. Mayer told her that he could make her into the biggest star in the world in three pictures. And when she said that she was already a star, he replied, I could make you bigger. We could handle things discreetly. Anita said, absolutely not. And that's when he said, I'll never lift another finger to help you. So, that rat fucker ruined her career because she wouldn't touch him with a ten-foot pole. Somehow, cognitive dissonance, Anita maintained that she had a great love and respect for L.B. Mayer because of all the good he did do her at the beginning of her career. But at any rate, coinciding with being on the outs with the powers that be at MGM came an influx of not very flattering remarks in the fan magazines. It feels less like not lifting a finger and more like a smear campaign. While earlier her close relationship with her parents was celebrated, now she was dubbed the no-date girl due to their protective influence and chaperoning. And while her figure was first complimented for being not too thin, suddenly there were plenty of references to her need for dieting and losing weight. Anita Page celebrated her 21st birthday by losing 15 pounds, said Photoplay. This came a few months after the same publication said that she was tipping the scales and warned her to be careful. There was also this very mean, but I'll say it, it's funny, snippet from Pitcher Play. Edith Hubner is Anita Page's favorite hairdresser, but what the fans want to know is who's been tampering with Anita's eyebrows. Tampering with one's eyebrows is a dangerous game. Let this be a lesson for us all. Motion Picture also had something to say about Anita's new eyebrows in their April 1931 edition. The straight eyebrows of Anita Page and the other beauties who affect that style of makeup are frankly somewhat artificial in their outline. But there is a basis in nature for this style of brow. If you imitate the brows of Anita Page, you are taking on yourself the responsibility of proving that you are not petulant and pouty. This would be the natural inference drawn from this type of brow in a woman. Naturalness and a clean-cut wholesomeness had been major selling points for Anita, so in trying out a new look, thin, angular brows were a growing trend, she immediately either came across as false or as petulant and pouty, either way the antithesis of her earlier persona. But what was Anita to do? In Photoplay's September 1931 issue, in an article called Charm, No, no, you must have glamour, which really did explain the vibe of the decade, they gave their take on Anita's position. Anita Page is still there, but she has not made good on her promise of stardom. No glamour, you see. She did try to come across as more glamorous and mature, there were the new eyebrows, yes, but also going to parties, sans her parents, and doing seductive photo shoots. It all continued to be met snidely. Event of events! We saw Anita Page smoking a cigarette at a Hollywood party and we rushed to tell you the news, reported Pitcher Play in their February 1932 issue, adding that her father had gone on record not long before to say, 
If his daughter's future depended on listening to dirty stories, petting and indulging in cigarettes, she would quit the screen. Either Papa has had a change of heart, or Anita is up to monkey shines. Now we leave you with the choice of which. Elsewhere, they wrote that she was attempting to get violently sophisticated on the screen. There were profiles. The girl that Hollywood can't figure out, in movie classic. They suggest that she is too good a sport to really fight for roles. And what's the matter with Anita Page in Movie Mirror? They seem to think that lots was the matter, from too much familial involvement, to poor posture, to not being poor enough financially to need the success, and to a general immaturity. That same magazine echoed the rather hopeless state of Anita's career in an entirely different issue, writing, But what is the matter with Anita Page? So much was promised, so much expected, and then nothing. Why, Anita is just as good as she ever was. That's the trouble. Anita hasn't changed one iota from the inexperienced girl who landed in Hollywood a few years ago. Her voice has that same thick, metallic ring. Her hair still cascades frightfully about her face and neck. Her shoulders still droop. And what's more, she still thinks the same. There's nothing snappy, modern, intriguing about Anita. And the strange part is, Anita is an intelligent girl, perfectly capable of going ahead if she would, but she hasn't hasn't taken stock of herself or the demands of the time, and that is the story of Anita Page. Knowing what Anita said about rejecting the casting couch, there's something notably icky about that one. Demands of the time, yeah? Through all of this, lest you assume that perhaps the fan magazines and casting directors were really on to something after all, the fans themselves were still very interested in Anita. She was getting, at various points, the third most fan mail at MGM of any performer. She wasn't getting starring roles, she wasn't landing in big movies, but she was working a lot and the people still liked her, despite what sure looks like a pointed attempt to convince everyone not to. Other, even more frustrating gossip bits started to enter the fan magazines. They say Anita Page pretends that she does not hear the director's orders. And, but she's made a lot of mistakes on her lot by talking too much about parts for which she is tested before they are officially given to her. It's both from photoplay. Not taking direction and having a big mouth. Tisk tisk tisk. In 1933... MGM finally put Anita out of her misery, so to speak, and released her from her contract. Instead of trying her hand at a different studio, Anita decided, at all of 23 years old, to retire. She did return to film briefly in 1961, and then starting in 1996, did a handful of films, mostly horror movies, before her death in 2008. Anita spoke quite positively about her early time in Hollywood and probably would have hated that I called Elby Mayer a rat fucker, but ultimately I stand by it. Briefly, Anita Page was a minor star and likely would have continued to grow in profile had it not been for the punitive actions of a rejected man. 
the Wampus were right in their predictions, but they were also complicit in her quick downfall. Who do you think was saying all that shit to the fan magazines? While none of the 1929 hopefuls could have predicted it, many pitfalls may litter a baby star's path to the top. From terrible Mike, to terrible Rolls, to, well, terrible Louis B. Mayer. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the Old Movie Lady podcast, please leave a review, be sure to subscribe, and tell everyone who will let you look deeply into their eyes and really hear what you have to say. There are more Wampus Baby Stars of 1929 to come, so stay tuned. I have been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl.